James Smith is the CEO of Bugsnag, an automated crash detection platform for web and mobile applications. James, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. 20 years ago, if I was using my computer and an application crashed, one of two things would usually happen. I would either do Control-Alt-Delete and end the application from the task manager, or the crash would be so catastrophic that I would have to restart my entire computer. (laughs) But today, crashes are handled more gracefully by computers. When a modern application crashes today, how does this crash manifest at the user level, whether we're talking about a a mobile application or a desktop application? That's super interesting. It really, really varies per platform, but you're right. You don't want there to be a catastrophic failure. You don't want to to be stuck and and, uh, have no recourse for this. But um, what we're seeing is, and you've probably seen this plenty yourself, but it really depends on what type of app you're building. So on web apps, uh, typically when a crash happens, an unhandled exception happens in your software, um, hopefully the web framework or programming language you're using has got some kind of uh, way to catch that. Uh, so you're probably familiar with seeing these 500 errors, 502 errors, whatever, all across the web. I saw one just the other day on a, on a, a pretty big e-commerce website, and I was like, this shouldn't happen. Uh, but hopefully there's, there's, a, there's a hook in there, hook in the software that's catching the exception uh, and stopping the entire application from dying. Um, so this is the cool thing that I've seen a lot recently. Instead of making the entire application die, um, there's some kind of exception hook, exception handler that is called that then renders a nice, hey, we're really sorry page to your customers. And the good thing about that is that the whole app doesn't die. It's not like that you have to then go and restart your entire Java Web Services app or Ruby on Rails application. Just that request, just that interaction with your customer crashed. So why have that affect everyone else? So that's quite a cool pattern I've seen recently, but uh, mobile still playing catch up with that. Um, you, again, you've probably seen this when using like Uber or something like this or pulling up a, a, any e-commerce app on your mobile phone or actually had this with um, a video streaming app the other day. Um, I went to play a video and the app just closed and that was it. It didn't even say sorry. It didn't even come <laughs> up with a message. It just died. It was gone forever. Um, and the scary thing is, is that once your product is out in the wild, once you've shipped it to your customers, um, 20 years ago, you wouldn't know about that. There would be no way to find out, hey, my, my customers are seeing this problem. Um, and then I guess another area which is quite interesting on uh, a lot of companies, a lot of uh, People building software now are using service-oriented architecture or microservices to build their software. Um, and that gives you a lot more complexity, but it also gives you a lot more robustness in situations, right? So you can have one microservice crash and fall over. That's not going to affect the rest of your services. They're going to keep keep up, keep available, keep stable. So there's a lot of things that have changed in the past 20 years. Um, and it's almost the it's got more complicated. There's, there's, more, there's more ways that crashes manifest uh, than 20 years ago. It's not just like a seg fault happened in your C program and, and you're like, well, there's a call dump. That's what it is. Now there's about 10 or, 10 or 20 different ways. Even in iOS alone, um, our crash monitoring plugin for iOS has to detect five different types of crash, uh, which is kind of insane in one platform. <laughs> So the, t- the types of crashes that we're seeing are more variable, but perhaps the best practices around crashes like microservices, service-oriented architecture, uh, um, graceful exception handling with some sort of hook, mm-hmm. these, these things uh, offset the, the, the large variety of new types of crashes that we have. Yeah, that's right. So there are all kinds of, um, of, 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 of other types of crashes, like, like you said. It, and so, for example, like my phone starts to go out of date and applications start to crash more often because uh, iOS 3 doesn't work for as well anymore. So um, is the root cause – so I, I, we, should, we should talk about some root causes. Like obviously, you know, a phone going out of date uh, is, is, is one cause – um, there are things like CPU, memory, obviously distributed systems failures. What are the types of application crashes that, as developers, we are worried about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
you've touched on one kind of big area there, which is uh, the devices that code your app is running on now have become incredibly fragmented, uh, especially in Android land. You write an Android application, you think, great, I've written an Android app, and then you're going to distribute it to, uh, you're not going to have a, a, a server farm, a phone farm of a thousand different Android devices or however many there are these days, tens of thousands probably. Um, but you know what? It, it basically the number we have data on the types of crashes that people are seeing um and it won't surprise you it won't surprise any listeners either but the historical biggest cause of crashes and still today the biggest cause of crashes uninitialized variables null pointers uninitialized variables and that is something that i feel like is getting a lot of headway in modern programming languages if you look at languages like swift um and and languages that are like hang on a second we shouldn't be 30 40 years in, into building software and still forgetting to initialize our variables and there's now language patterns that are coming up to to actually stop that from happening i'm sure you've seen these but um genuinely the biggest by far crash type uh, that we see at bugsnag is uninitialized variables null pointer exceptions all over the place so uh undefined is not a function yeah exactly undefined is not a function uh uh, nil nil method in in Ruby, uh, null pointer exception, NPEs in in Java and Android land, across every platform except for these new ones that are like no, you can't have null variables. That's not a thing. It's not allowed. Um, so that's kind of fun because that's still happening. It's massively prevalent, and you can tell that we're fighting back now by trying to do things uh, at the programming language level and trying to do better with static analysis before we even uh, ship this stuff. Um, but yeah, you touched on the fragmentation of devices. Um, the second kind of biggest thing that we see, and this is across all, all platforms and programming languages, is handling data that you didn't expect. Um, I can't remember the exact details of uh, this case study, but there was a really interesting bug that we saw in Ruby in Rails applications a couple of years ago, where suddenly a ton of Rails applications started to crash uh, with Unicode errors. And people were like, why, why, why now? What's happening? And there was some kind of bug where um, a particular character in Swedish uh, was being uh, showing up as Unicode encoding when it was, should have been showing up as the Swedish encoding. And everyone's app suddenly fell over because nobody was testing in Sweden. Maybe the only apps that were working were apps that were developed in Sweden at the time. Um, and it's just things like this that you don't expect during the development cycle. Uh, oh, no one's ever going to do that. You know, at the, the basic level when you're learning to code, um, you send in a number when you should send in a string into a function. That happens everywhere when you have crazy data and user inputted data and it's i know it sounds obvious it sounds basic but it's one it's the the second biggest one out of after uninitialized variables but to dive into what you said earlier um out of memory on android land they call it oom uh, out of memory exceptions um having uh, calling functions that are in new APIs that aren't available. So Android rolls out a new version, like, great, let's use this new sensor that they've rolled out. Uh, <laughs> let's roll it out to all of our customers. Everybody updates, and then it crashes. Uh, so the, just the sheer um, the pace that the devices are being rolled out means that there's no way you can test on every single device. You can't have the exact same environment set up on every single device. If there's one app on your device that's munching all the memory, uh, you can't know that. You think, great, we'll test it in our nice, clean, sandbox environment. You ship it out, and then someone's Instagram app is taking up all of the RAM because it's loading all these pictures. Uh, you're going to have a bad time. But yeah, no, that one's, that one's, that one's huge, especially with um, the, the pace of mobile development and the mobile device release cycles that are happening these days. So going back to the canonical problems of uninitialized variables, you, you talked about there are some language patterns that are cropping up these days. Perhaps you're talking about functional programming. Um, what are the language patterns that you're seeing that, that could help avert these types of uninitialized variables, these canonical problems that developers have, whether they're a new developer or an old developer? Yeah, the, the, the kind of... There's two approaches, right? There's the, the programming language approach where it literally forces you uh, to not have uninitialized variables. So um, I'm not sure if I'm getting the terminology right here because I've not done a lot of Swift development, but in, in Swift land, um, you have to explicitly uh, mark variables as nullable or you have, you have to say, no, this is okay if this is null or, or uninitialized. Um, and there's actually a syntax in Swift where you can put a little question mark after a variable to say, yeah, it's cool. This can, this can be nullable. Don't worry. 
Um, so it explicitly forces you to say, hey, I'm doing something stupid here, or I know what I'm doing, uh, to, to kind of allow you through that, that path, which I, I, I quite like. Um, being a, I've been developing software for quite a long time, and I tend to uh, initially fight against things like this. I'm like, oh, I just really want to pass in a null, null variable here, a null pointer here. Uh, so that takes a lot of getting used to. But I, I, the fact that this is at the programming language design level, I think is a, is a pretty crucial thing. And hopefully uh, the next generations of software engineers that are coming out uh, learning development at this stage are saying, oh, yeah, I won't do that because it's against the paradigm of this programming language. So that's really cool. Um, but we're also seeing this kind of resurgence of static analysis. So um, there's some tools out there. There's some open source tools, but there's also some services like uh, Code Climate, uh, which you can run your code through. You can attach your GitHub repository to this code, uh, to Code Climate, for example, and it will spot patterns. It will spot uh, bad habits in your code. Uh, so on one hand, the program languages are, are saying, modern program languages are saying, don't do that. That's stupid, which I think is a great thing. It takes some getting used to, but it's a great thing. And on the other hand, uh, for someone like me, who's, who's kind of getting into greybeard territory in, in, uh, in programming these days, if I don't want to do that, I can pull up a tool like Code Climate, do some static analysis, and it will grade or rank my, uh, my functions and my classes and saying, look, here's some bad smells, here's some bad patterns. So mm. I, that's something that was around for a long time. Static analysis has been around for 30 plus years. Um, but there's this resurgence now because people are knowing, right, once this is out in the wild, once I've shipped this, it's going to be hard to fix it. It's going to be hard to do anything about it. So th that's the kind of two sides of the coin I see. It's quite cool. Sure. So you're the CEO of Bugsnag, and Bugsnag provides automated crash detection. What is automated crash detection, and how does that relate to the conversation that we're having? Yeah, so um, a lot of the things we're talking about, these common errors, these problems that come up all the time, um, as software engineers, we're trying to we're trying to predict these and, and stop them from happening before we ship our software to our customers. But software engineering has changed in the past kind of three, four, five years where even the, the biggest, slowest, oldest companies are now moving to agile development, rapid iteration. They're shipping code to production uh, instead of every three months. Uh, they're shipping code to production multiple times per day. So, yeah, we need to get best practices. We need to make sure that we're not doing the obvious mistakes and obvious errors, but um, the nature of uh, this kind of rapid development cycle and the nature of the fact that we're shipping code to environments outside of our control, such as mobile devices, mean that you literally cannot catch every bug in development anymore. So the concept behind Bugsnag and, and what we've built is that um, you drop in a, a library into your application, and then when you ship your application to production, uh, our library will automatically detect any crashes that happen in production. So we were talking earlier about these, um, your first question around uh, how, how do these manifest? How can, what do they look like these days? There's, there's these exception hooks. So what we've done is in every different platform that we support, I think we support something like 18 official platforms now, um, which is complicated enough as it is. Uh, but in every, every one of these platforms, we have various exceptional crash hooks where we detect a crash when it happens in production. And what we do is we wake up. Our library sits dormant until that happens. We wake up and take a diagnostic snapshot. So we say what line of code was running, uh, what user was using the device, how much memory was being used, was it on Linux, was it on Mac, what server was it on, what IP address was it on, any kind of information that's relevant to the platform, we wake up and collect. Um, and the point of that is we can collect that, aggregate around the root cause, uh, so we can say, hang on a second, in production you had a million crashes, but all of those a million crashes were caused by the same underlying line of code. So aggregating them together so you can immediately see, whoa, there's a really bad bug right now that's affecting a million customers. Um, and then because we've collected diagnostic data, we give you the steps to reproduce, which is the, the base case of any bug fix. How do I reproduce this? So the idea is that once you ship your code to production, it's the wild west, basically. So we're, we're saying, don't worry, we're, we're keeping an eye out on what's happening in production. We help you prioritize surface and then actually reproduce and fix these crashes that are happening to your real customers. So it's kind of the, the last line of defense. After you've done all the best practices we've been talking about so far, this is the, we've got your back once it's out in production. When a developer starts using a automated crash detection platform like a bug snag, 
how does the workflow of debugging change? How does the the um, the application development process change? That's a really that's a really interesting question because uh, that's one thing that we actually learned a lot from our customers when we built Bugstack. Um, so you'll you'll be familiar with this, but like way back, you were talking about twenty years ago, and still big companies do this today. Uh, you used to find out about crashes when your customers complained, which is awful. That's, that's it's just a, it blows my mind that that's still sometimes acceptable. And, you know, if, if one customer's complained, then probably 20, 30 other customers have already abandoned your software by now. They, they've given up and they've moved to a competitor. So the biggest change is that you know, you know, as soon as your customer's seen a crash, you've seen it as well because you've been alerted in your inbox or in your team chat like Slack or something like that by Bugsnag. So at the base case, you know the same time your customer knows, which is really, really empowering and very powerful. The second uh, thing that we've seen, and our customers say this all the time, is because we collapse all these crashes down by root cause, so we group them all together, aggregate them all together, you can now uh, definitively know which crashes you should fix first. So you can come in and say, this crash here is literally affecting a million customers, whereas this next one is affecting 10 customers. So you can actually pick which ones you work on and, and allocate some kind of magical threshold. Um, and in fact, based on that, uh, based on talking with our customers, we actually built features into our, into our product, into our dashboard. So we have this um, dashboard now that sorts by uh, how many people saw a crash, how many customers saw a crash. And then you can use it as an inbox. So you can archive them or you can do... Uh, you can snooze them, which is a new feature we rolled out uh, in November. So you can click on a, an error and say, snooze this until it affects 100 or more customers or snooze this for the next six hours because it's not quite bad enough yet to do anything with it. So it's really funny that we, we've taken some things that we knew would be helpful and then we've been learning from the, the behavior of, uh, of our customers and kind of trying to give them the tools they need to get to inbox zero uh, on, on their bugs. And you know, the dirty secret of software is that you literally cannot fix every bug. Uh, and we're okay with that and everyone else is okay with that. But now you can say which one should you fix, which I think is the, is the key part here. Is, is, um, it's very empowering. Another real quick thing which, I, which I'm seeing from our customers and I'm loving and we're really embracing this is that having a tool like Bugsnag makes, helps you become a better software developer. If you see over and over and over again that I'm doing null pointer exceptions, you're going to hit yourself. You're going to be like, not again. I should know better by now. Uh, so you start capturing real problems and real patterns, and then you can level up your, your um, skills, your personal skills as a software engineer. Um, that one's a really cool side effect that we're embracing right now as well. Modern applications have a distributed element to them. You know, We talked about microservices a little bit and there's there's a mobile or a web front end for most applications but there are lots of servers that get contacted for a typical request and whether that server is a database or some random service oriented middleware and oftentimes you know the the error an, or an error or an undefined type of behavior may manifest at the front end that um, was really the result of a bug in an intermediate layer. Right. How does Bugsnag have insight into those different layers of the application stack? So that's, a, that's another really interesting thing. That's a, it's actually a very, very difficult problem to solve uh, because you need to capture the appropriate level of context. You don't want to be overwhelmed by uh, context, but you want to know what the underlying root cause was here. So... Um, there's a couple of interesting things that we do, but one of the reasons that Bugsnag is a cross-platform, truly cross-platform uh, error monitoring product, the reason that we support all web, desktop, browser, mobile, all of these platforms is for this exact reason. If you have a crash that manifests on mobile, that might have been uh, one of your microservices on the back end transformed data in a bad way, and then that got all the way through to your client. Um, so that's something we, we see in production. So what we try and do... There's an automated way of doing this, and then there's a, a, a layer on top of it you can do as a software developer to get more clues through the process. So one thing that we do is um, we try and track a single user ID throughout an, a transaction. So if your task is something that came, started off with a user interacting with a mobile app, that went off and did a web request, then went into another service, another service, another service. We try and make it trivial, one line of code for you to say, 
this code that's executing right now is on behalf of this user. So then what you can do in, uh, in our dashboard, we have this kind of insanely uh, powerful filter bar. It's like a search bar. So you can say, show me all crashes that affected this user ID. Um, so what you can do is you can track the journey of uh, errors that one user had throughout all of your services. Um, now, there's not always a user involved in, in, in software. There's not always... Uh, uh, Tasks are not always instigated by a customer, for example. You know, like if you're running a cron job that's sending out a batch of emails overnight, that, that's not going to touch a user necessarily. Um, so we also allow you to do request IDs or batch IDs. So uh, in microservices, um, when you've got uh, end services talking to each other, the common pattern, I'm sure you've seen this, is sending a request ID to tie uh, a request from point A all the way through each service to the end. Um, so what we've built is uh, a way of sending custom metadata, custom diagnostic data with every crash. So you can say, at the point that we start this uh, service up, here's the request ID. And then you can then follow that back throughout all the applications. That's something we're going to be expanding upon in future releases to make it really trivial to see the journey of a user or journey of a request. But that already is tied together inside Bugsnag right now. Because it's everybody's, even if you don't talk about microservices, as you said, a mobile app is not a mobile app on its own. There's always some service or database or whatever backing it behind the scenes. So, um, but yeah, uh, I guess even not talking about microservices and client server relationships, we sometimes it's interesting to see which code called which other code. Obviously, a stack trace is a core concept for um, software developers, but um, when you're running code in production, sometimes people are calling your code or running your code in a way you didn't expect. So at the core of Bugsnag, at the, the underlying level is that when we detect a crash, we get the full stack trace. So we can have a look at the entire stack trace, and quite often that you'll see, hey, this called out to MySQL or Postgres or whatever you're using for your database. And you're like, aha, the crash was instigated in the database right there. So um, even without talking about microservices or client server, you can see in a stack trace quite often if a, a bug was caused by a service you're interacting with. But it's, it's a really actually quite hard problem to solve. So we've been talking about the high-level use cases and the high-level practicality of bug snag. And we did touch on how it, how it actually works on the device. It monitors the device for exceptions being thrown. And if one is thrown, it wakes up and reports data back to the bug snag servers so that the developers can can look at those um those server notifications and and see the bugs that have occurred on their clients or on their customers mobile devices so i i want to get a better idea for how that works how that software on the mobile device works uh and and what were some of the challenges in uh, in implementing the this 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 lightweight layer that has to watch for exceptions, could you give some color on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a really good um, a simple example uh, is looking at Java applications. So, um, one good thing to point out at this stage as well is that um, all of what we call our notifiers, our, our crash detection libraries are actually all completely open source on GitHub. So you can go to github.com slash bugsnag and you can dig really deep into what, what kind of stuff we're detecting and how we're detecting it. So if you want to go deep, then there's fairly well-documented code in all of our open source libraries. Well, that's, I mean, that's super important because if you, know, if you have some kind of high-performance mobile application and, it, and you get some binary from bugsnag that... Uh, oh yeah, if you, you have to install this binary yeah. to watch your application. You can be like, I'm not going to do yes. that. It's, I have no idea what this thing does. So you basically you have to open source. It's it's so uh, important. I, I to love us that. That, that, that the level of trust. No, there's two things, right? Well, you want to be able to. Tr someone else is saying run some code in my software. You need to be able to trust what's happening in there. And the second thing is, which is I'm uh, huge into open source. I've been developing open source libraries and apps for for years. Uh, but the other thing is that we're working with some of the the biggest and best companies in the world and they're coming back and saying hey we've added this feature we've added this enhancement we've made this better and it's, it's the best feeling ever when uh your customers uh -huh. are embracing this and giving you patches to your plugins which is awesome um 
But at the so I definitely recommend if you want to really go deep into this, you can check out open source libraries and they're relatively well documented and you can see all the secret magic that we do there. Um, but Java is a great example. So um, in Java land, there is a um, on the thread object, the thread class, sorry, there's a static method called um, set uncaught exception handler. I think I might be getting the, the name wrong, but it's something like that, set uncaught exception handler. So basically you can say, if a thread crashes, run this code. And because in Java land, you're in the JVM, when you're... That sounds pretty useful to you. Yeah, it's pretty good. You need to know that kind of stuff. <laughs> and in fact, if you actually really want to go to... like, we, we spent a long time and a lot of time and effort making these very, very good and well-tuned and fast. But if you want to go back to basics, you can, in your Java app hook into thread.set-on-court-exception-handler, and you can send yourself an email or do what people did five, ten years ago and send it to a log file that you're never going to read. Uh, but realistically, you can build this up from, from the basics yourself. And to get it really right does take a while, but if you want to get started, that's something you can do. And, um, yeah, because you're in the JVM, your app may have crashed, but the JVM is still running. So the JVM can then execute your thread.set-on-court-exception-handler function uh, which gives you enough time then to say what code was running, what was the stack trace, how much memory was being used at that point in time. And that's the, probably the simplest example. In JVM land, it's very simple. Uh, but there's always something like that in every single program language. Um, I mentioned earlier in iOS land, uh, there are like four or five different types of crash. That's when it gets really interesting because you can have a, a, C, a C++ exception uh, you can have an Objective-C ex- uh, exception. You can have a, a, an un- a signal, uh, like a seg fault that's been thrown. And there's a couple of others as well that I can't even remember. I'm not even an expert in, in that side of things because I can't even remember all of them. But that's when it gets really, really nasty is when you have to catch all these edge cases. Okay, so let's go into that. I mean, uh, the like the, the certainly the 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 language level primitive that is basically the perfect way of doing that. And like in Java, like where you said you just set a listener on the thread, and if this thread hits an exception, uh, notify Bugsnag. That's, that seems like a pretty easy implementation. Give me an example of a language or an environment where the implementation is not so easy and you have to do something tricky. Oh, there's a this this is getting uh, getting deep now. It's a good question though. There's uh, there's two that spring to mind. One of them is um, compiled languages where um, a signal has been thrown, like a seg fault, for example, and the other one is uh, JavaScript uh, in the browser. Um, maybe I'll dive into the the, the the signal one in, let's say, Objective-C land or in a C application. Um, when a crash happens in, uh, let's say, Objective-C and it's a signal, it's a seg fault, uh, you're accessing some memory you shouldn't be accessing, you get a segmentation fault. You can hook into that signal inside the software. So you can say, tell me when that signal is thrown. The problem is in POSIX land, um, and again, I'm not a super uh, expert into this, but there's some, there's some fun reading you can do around this. There's this concept of um, async safety. So if you're in a signal handler, uh, for example, you've detected there's a seg fault. Now you're running a bit of code in that signal handler. There's certain things you're not allowed to do. For example, you are not allowed to make network requests. You are not allowed to do things that, you know, if, if, if you're bug snag, you want to be able to go and alert bug snag uh-huh. that a crash has happened. But in that state, you literally cannot make network requests. You cannot allocate memory. There's about a hundred things you're not allowed to do in uh, signal handlers. So there's this concept called async safety. So you're like, well, how the heck do we solve this? How, how do we get around this? So you have to be creative. You have to say, right, well, let's pre-allocate memory. So let's say when we start up the app, let's have some memory ready to go so that we don't need to do any memory allocation when a crash happens. And you're like, well, the network, we can't use a network. How do we send this? So you're like, well, okay, if a signal happens, maybe we can flush this to disk. And then next time the app boots up, then we can send it via network. But then you're like, can we write to disk in async safe mode? And then another problem manifests and another problem manifests. So um, again, I'm not uh, necessarily the world's expert on that kind of stuff, but the the scenarios that come up when you go down that rabbit hole get pretty complex. Um, A more kind of tangible one that I think people would have seen themselves is in uh, web development, if let's say you're building a, a JavaScript application, 
you're going to minify that JavaScript when you ship it out to production, right? So you're going to take your beautiful code with the comments and nicely named functions and variables, and it's going to be squashed down to a single line that's like function A's variable B, and it's going to be completely obfuscated and useless. And when I say useless, I mean when a crash happens, you need to be able to find where that came from. So you want to know which function crashed. You want to see which line number, which method name. Uh, and that stuff is not available in minified code. So Bugsnag, for example, and this isn't in the, in the crash detection library. We detect a crash and we send off to Bugsnag. A crash happened in method name G because that's a minified method name or whatever. And then we have to take that crash report and we have to recombine it with the original symbol information uh, that was stripped out. Uh, so that's a really fun process because we, we need two parts then. We don't just need the crash report. We also need the symbol information. Um, and in JavaScript land, there's a, there's a concept called source maps, which is super popular. It's supported by Chrome and it's supported by Bugsnag as well. So if you're building, if you're minifying your code with uglifier.js, uh, you can enable source maps and have them uploaded as well. And Bugsnag will go and fetch them. And this is also true of iOS and Android where you want to get that binary size down as small as possible before giving it to your customers. So you need to have both the crash information and the symbol information you, and we combine them together on your behalf. So yeah, that, there's, there's some fun, fun examples for you there. And again, some of that, most of that is you can see in our open source libraries, but some of it we have to do behind the scenes because we're combining all these different files together. No, that's great. I, I, it gives me a really good idea of how the product works. Um, so Let's let's go a little higher level, I guess. So when a software product has a bug, uh, the process of fixing that bug often involves several different teams working together, or at least one team identifies the bug and communicates it to another team. If a service crashes, maybe the ops team discovers the bug from a crash. Uh, I, so does does a crash detection platform help with this communication across teams like we, we kind of have you've given an idea of how it helps an individual developer how does this work in in implementation with with different teams yeah that's actually something we think about a lot when building our dashboard products so um we've got people using our product that's one developer sat in a bedroom and then we've got uh, development teams of 2,000 to 5,000 people using the product as well. Um, they're not too dissimilar, actually. It's kind of interesting. So before diving into like the comm side of things, I'm going to make a potentially controversial statement, which is uh, I think that the developer who wrote the code is the best placed person to know about that crash and to fix that crash. And this is, I don't think this should be a controversial statement. I think that most people will agree with me, but in some companies, you're right, there's the, the NOC team, the operations team, these are the first line of defense for these kind of things, but they don't really know what's going on inside the code because they didn't write the code. So one of the kind of foundations of Bugsnag, and this comes from kind of a personal level, is that we are trying to empower software developers to be better software developers. And the only way we can do that is to empower them to find and, and, and fix bugs in their own software, even in huge teams. And that's kind of a strange concept for larger teams, but they're kind of embracing it as they get into this rapid iteration cycle because the more people you have to communicate between to get something fixed, the longer it takes to get a fix out. Um, so that's a, a concept that we kind of uh, keep close to our hearts. But on the other side of things, um, if you're working on a, as an individual contributor in a large company, you're working on a feature. You've got a thing that you need to ship by the end of the week. Um, so prioritization is really, really important. So we talked about prioritizing bugs absolutely in your software, but we've built a bunch of tools that allow engineering managers to uh, take a look at what the worst problems are and then assign them to people. So in Bugsnag, you can the point of uh, our inbox view in Bugsnag is you can see which crashes have been detected the next stage is moving them to in progress. Someone is working on this. Um, and in Bugsnag line, in progress means either you've assigned it to an engineer inside the Bugsnag dashboard, or you're probably using an issue tracking uh, tool already like Jira, GitHub issues, Pivotal Tracker, that kind of stuff. Um, you can sync, you can link a, an error in Bugsnag into your issue tracker. So either if you've assigned it to someone or it's, a, it's been linked into your issue tracker in Bugsnag, we class that as in progress. So you can start tracking the progress of these things. And then the end state is uh, ideally fixed or ignored because you can't fix every bug and some of them are, are, are relevant. Um, 
So we have this kind of uh, workflow baked into the product, which is meant to support how organizations are working already. So you, if this is a new problem, is it being worked on and assigned? And have we fixed it? And you can track that end to end through, through Bugsnag. So it's almost like um, uh, states that you're used to seeing in something like Jira. Uh, but because Bugsnag is updating in real time as these crashes come in, we can prioritize things as well. So tying together workflow with prioritization is, is how we're approaching this working in one-man teams, one-person teams, all the way up to huge organizations. Hmm. So just to reduce a little bit of the controversy around what you might have said was what you might have thought was controversial. Like I, I saw an interview recently with Mark Zuckerberg and the interviewer asked him if he still coded for Facebook. And basically what he said was he didn't code for Facebook anymore because they have a policy where you have to support your own code. So, I mean, I think that probably, de- and, and he doesn't have time to support his <laughs> yeah. CEO. He's got like, you know, drones to, to study and stuff. And <laughs> I don't know. Um, but like, uh, I don't know. I think that's a great philosophy. Like you write your code, you have to support it. There's no ops team to, to protect you. Yeah. Um, I think that's the Netflix model too, kind of the no ops thing. It's definitely, it's definitely um, is, we're getting there. Uh, it's progressive. It's, prog- it's happening, um, but the, I still. Well, talk- it's because the partly because the tooling is better. Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a two way street. You would you wouldn't have been able to done, do this before. You would have had as an individual contributor in a huge company. You would have zero visibility into these problems. And um, so we're starting with a philosophy, and that philosophy is: you're the best person. You wrote this code. You're the best person to fix bugs in it, and you're the best person to figure out. Uh, the performance characteristics of this and you're the, you, like I used to work in a big f- uh, financial tech company a long time ago and your code once you wrote it would be gone you wouldn't know where it is someone else is running it and it had this awful mentality there of uh, in some teams and in some situations you'd be like oh, we've written a database query. We'll, we'll get the DBAs to optimize that query. Or, oh, it's out in production. I don't care the performance of this. And that was all. Oh, that was that the, really... The request, request response coding model. Yeah, yeah, it was. That really wound me up. That was, a, that was a bad way to develop software. And you can tell this is how sparks of philosophy are born. And, uh, and that's the whole underlying point of our product. Right. And the other thing, another thing you touched on was, uh, you know, this comparison of, of Bugsnag to something like Jira, I also think of uh, the comparison between GitHub issues um, and these other platforms. Uh, maybe it's my association with just the products I was working on when I was um, when I was using these to support those products. But um, I don't remember feeling particularly ple- like <laughs> it wasn't a pleasurable debugging experience. Um, f- you know, that was informed by those, those tools like, right. you know, Jira issues or GitHub issues, possibly because those, those platforms are, are trying They're They're from, they're from an older era where we had fewer tools and, and the tools were more broad. And now we're in this newer era with, with more developers than ever. And so we have more narrow developer tools and they're more well suited and that's that's strikes me as as one thing that bugsnag is is it's this it really it is kind of like a like a an inbox for bugs and it's designed with um uh with with a with a much more entertaining interface yeah you know i think Um, you've touched on something there which is the um we say this all the time if you get a bug, if there's an error in your software, that shouldn't be a scary thing. That shouldn't be a bad thing. That should be great. That's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to fix something for your customers and improve your product. Um, but that's that's a longer-term philosophy. I think people are always, right now are always afraid of bugs. But I think it comes from tools like Jira, GitHub issues, these issue trackers. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with those tools. In fact, if you're prioritizing, you're trying to say, which feature do I build next? They're essential. You have to use them. But a lot of times they would be a dumping ground. So people would, a customer would come with a problem. Yes. Customer support would then transcribe that yes. and it would end up with a, with a, a description that was not reproducible. Uh, sometimes it was yeah. completely wrong. Everyone groaned right. when they saw that. So the... There, right, so you would see something, you would see something in Jira that would say like, 
customer is seeing the color orange uh, in in this in the like in this situation. And as a developer, you open up that ticket and you're like, I don't know what the mm-hmm. heck this means. But as opposed to bug snack, where you see a stack, you trace. see a stack trace, you see the type of class, you see what device it was running on. You know, everything is there to try and reproduce it yourself, rather than we. I've seen this even last week when I was at a customer's office. Uh, in that, I was like, How do you do this right now? And they showed me a Jira, and there was a ticket that said, "Customer saw a crash." And then in the ticket, it was like, <laughs> "Customer clicked icon on home screen, and app crashed." And it was like, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> it's just useless. It's not, we say actionability all the time. That is not an actionable problem. Uh, and no wonder that there's, I have these same feelings. No wonder people get frustrated about these tools. It's not the tools themselves. The tools themselves are great. It's the content that's in there. It's not actionable. It doesn't relate to anything that I'm building as a software engineer. And it's a chore. It ends up as a chore in that situation. Tell me how Bugsnag got started. Yeah, so um, you can probably tell by my accent that I'm, uh, I'm not from uh, the Bay Area, even though that's where our company's based. We're in San Francisco. Um, but I used to work uh, in financial technology in London. Uh, and then in 2009, I, I moved out to San Francisco to join uh, a startup as CTO. And at both of these companies, I saw the same problems. So it was in this huge enterprise company. And things would break. I kind of already told this story, but things would break and I wouldn't know about it. I'd be super frustrated. And then in a startup, you're moving incredibly fast. You're iterating, you're pushing new code to production 10 times per day. And the same problem was manifesting. And um, I was sat down with my, my co-founder and my uh, longtime friend, Simon, uh, in, in a bar one day. And we were talking, we were catching up on things. And he was talking about, he was working in enterprise software. And he said, no, I've seen the same thing in healthcare, telecoms, uh, all these industries. And we were like, we've got to fix this. We have to fix this. So um, we left our jobs a couple months later. We hacked up a prototype, sent it out to a few customers, released a beta, um, started putting out paid plans. People started paying money for it and kind of took us from, from there to here. We're now uh, 21 people, um, 15 in San Francisco, six in the UK. Um, and yeah, it, it came, it, it was scratching an itch. You know, it's the same as any project that any software engineer builds, any hobby project, any side project. It's like, this sucks. I want to fix it. I'm going to go and fix it right now. Um, And we were lucky enough and gracious enough to be in an industry in in a position where the problem that we were solving is a problem that really, really hurts companies and they want to pay for a solution and pay for a tool that that, that helps with this. But it it just genuinely came out of a, a frustration, a personal pain point and a desire to, we can fix this. We can do better. What did the earliest versions of the Bugsnag product look like? So there's some kind of fundamentals. We had a, an MVP, which was uh, it had to detect, alert, surface, and diagnose. That was our kind of four columns that we had on the original product. So uh, we rolled out on... So no specific platform. You weren't focused on a specific We actually platform. rolled out... No, we did roll out on, a, on, uh, on two platforms to begin with. Um, and we rolled out on two very different platforms on purpose because I said mm-hmm. kind of earlier, it's core to our philosophy that we, we are f- across the entire stack. So we rolled out on Ruby on Rails, uh, actually Ruby in general, but Ruby on Rails was a kind of core focus and Android. So you couldn't get kind of further away from each other. Um, mm. are th- those, the, those are the two biggest, maybe two biggest application platforms. So we actually I mean for us now, uh, our biggest platform by far is, is JavaScript because if you're writing, uh, in any backend oh, platform, you're going to be writing JavaScript on the front end, but that's just a, that's such a big surface exactly, area. It's just the nature of the beast. But, um, we Ruby on rails because, um, at the time we started Bugsnag, there was an appetite. There was an understanding that, you could trivially install a gem into your application, a dependency, and that was okay. That's a cool thing. And it actually, only in the past couple of years has it become acceptable in the broader software community to pull in random dependencies from some other company, which is, again, why we're open, open source is important to us. Mm-hmm. But back in the, you know, three, four years ago, the Ruby community was all over that. They're like, great, I don't want to write this code. Get someone else to write it for me. <laughs> um, so uh, we started off on Ruby because it was acceptable to do that. And we started off on Android uh, for the kind of a similar reason, a because there was a very easy path to detecting crashes, uh, b because it's 
easy, trivial to drop in a jar file as a dependency into your Java applications and Android applications. And also because of what we were talking about earlier, the fragmentation, the pain point of a crash in production on Android, there was no way of solving this before. So having that centralized and detecting all these crashes in production was essential. So we tried to start very far away from each other, Ruby over here and Android over here. Um, and that kind of forced us to build an architecture and a dashboard and a set of services that would work cross-platform. Mm. So I'd like to talk more about the customer usage. Um, so Bugsnag has like pivot tables, timeline analysis, multi-dimensional filters, uh, other ways to explore data. This sounds like a tool for data science. <laughs> are there are there like uh, maybe, like, maybe I'm totally misinformed and like these these things are useful, but like I to a to a normal debugger. But I like think of my like think of you know times when I was just like debugging a mobile application or debugging some random Java application. I can't think of when I would use a pivot table unless maybe like I was segmenting my customers right. and I wanted to find like I don't know the highest value. That's yeah, exactly it. I, that, you've, you've nailed it. Okay. Like so, um, right. we work with customers because you're not necessarily looking for the most customers that had a bug. You're looking for the highest expected value. Exactly. Bug. Either the high. I mean, that's the that's the rawest, most kind of aggressive way of doing it. But some of our customers will will do other things. So, for example, if you're using, um, let's say the Uber. No, let's say you're using. Yeah, let's say you're using Uber. Right. There is a crash on the settings page is not as important as a crash on the request a car, request an Uber page. So you can actually segment your application by n dimension. So one of them is what screen was shown, what action did the user do? But you're, you actually nailed it first time with one of the biggest ones. Um, a lot of our customers will say, show me crashes that are affecting paying customers first. So this kind of stuff happens uh, at larger companies and companies that have more revenue. Uh, or companies that have larger teams because sometimes you'll, you'll say, let's segment it down by crashes in this part of the app because maybe that's the only part of the app that your team that is using Bugsnag cares about. So actually slicing and dicing this crash data is is now pretty crucial for us for our larger customers. You're absolutely right, though. In, um, in small teams or in hobbyists or uh, projects, um, you, you just want to jump straight to the crashes. Oh, we've only got a few crashes, but we've got customers now <laughs> you know, who've got... Uh, there are customers who are sending us um, uh, millions of crashes per day. Uh, and yes, maybe that's, that's a function of the fact they have a lot of customers and it crump, that we collapse them down to end bugs. Um, but getting that uh, segmentation and filtering and grouping is pretty crucial to anyone who's got a high volume application or a lot of developers. I could see how that would be quite useful to uh, to some giant company that's getting millions and millions. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, so an- another feature that uh, you have is the ability to track deployments. Um, what are the issues that can occur during a software deployment? And are there any difficulties? So, I mean, we've talked some about the, the, the monitoring, uh, like how you do the monitoring on the device level, on the application level, the, u- the user application level, and some of the difficulties. Are there any unique difficulties to, to deployments? Yeah, so we've actually seen a few interesting things here. The, the concept of deployment tracking for us is uh, a subset of this broader concept of a release tracking. A release tracking. So you're saying, uh, I'm building a server-side app, a back-end app. Um, when I do a new deploy, I'm, re- I'm replacing the old version. And I'm, here's a new copy of my code. It's a new release. On mobile, a release is like, this is version 2 instead of version 1.5. So conceptually, you care about releases because, in theory, every time you push out a release you're trying to improve your code. You're trying to do better than last time. And one huge thing that that every developer should care about is, can we prove that we fix bugs in the new release that were introduced or were in the previous release? So the concept of release uh, tracking and deploy tracking for us is about saying, are we doing a better job now than we were last time we did a release? And did our new release introduce any new problems? So we have this concept, again, this is where the filtering and stuff and the pivoting comes in in place in the dashboard. Um, You probably want to say things like, show me all crashes that were introduced in version 1.0 or introduced in this latest deploy. The other interesting, so that, that it's actually, 
it's about the about code that's living in the wild because this is production error monitoring. Um, deploys normally there's only one deploy living in the wild unless you break it down by production staging beta all these different environments but in mobile land there are n deploys living in the wild because you're at the whim of the customer upgrading their application so deploy tracking is actually pretty crucial you might even want to say i don't care about supporting version one customers anymore they should have upgraded by now so then you can filter out all of those customers out of your error bo- inbox in Bugsnag and say, let's just focus on version two customers only. So there's kind of a lot of um, variables, a lot of reasons why tracking a release or a deploy is important, but basically it's to help you hone in on the changes we've made recently. What have we done recently? What's the future of Bugsnag? <laughs> That's a good question. That's, I could talk for hours about this, but uh, in a nutshell, um, we're building uh, a dashboard. I said this a couple, uh, earlier in the conversation, but we're building something that is a, it's like a productivity dashboard for software engineers. So this is not something you should be afraid of. This is not something you should be like, oh no, another bug. This should be something where you're like, I'm getting better at what I do. This, th- I found a pattern in my, in my, in my software engineering that I, of bugs I'm introducing that I want to, uh, I want to solve. So we're, we're building this daily dashboard for software engineers. And right now we're focusing on the, core element of that which is the most actionable thing which is have you broken the software that you're delivering to your customers but uh in a nutshell though we're i don't know if you ever heard this stat there's a there's a, a study that came out a couple of years ago that's that found 49 percent of software developers time is spent finding and fixing bugs that's an average doubt and that is again that blew my mind and i thought no way no way is that true i'm only spending 10 percent of my time finding fixing bugs and then you start tracking it and it is terrifying. The amount of time we ask our customers about it as well. You know, you, it's, it's like a cognitive dissonance. You're like, no, it's fine. We've only spent a little bit of time finding these bugs. But it turns out almost everyone we're talking to is saying between 40 and 50%. And our mission as a company is to get that number as close to zero as possible. Because a lot of this stuff is schlep work. It's, it's really boring stuff like digging into log files and looking for patterns in charts. And humans are really bad at doing that. And computers are really good at doing that. So we're trying to make software that means you don't have to do that. And we want to get that time as close to zero as possible. So you as a a single hobbyist developer building a a, a hobby project or open source app or a huge company can spend all of your time focused on building new features and delivering value to your customers or delivering value to your users. So that's, that's the kind of mission that we have. That is a bright future. <laughs> I hope and, so. And uh, something, something I, I look forward to. Um, well, James, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. This has been a great conversation. Um, Bugsnag is a great product, and um, I'm, I'm really happy to ha- have had you on the show. Thanks so much, Jeff. It was great to be a guest on the show.